Welcome to Insight Mind Body Talk, a body-based mental health podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica Warpola-Schultz and Jeannie Kolker. Whether you've tried everything to feel better and something is still missing, or you've already discovered the wisdom of the body, this podcast will encourage and support you in healing old wounds, strengthening relationships, and developing your inner potential. All by accessing the mind-body connection. Please know, while we're excited to share and grow together, this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for mental health treatment. It doesn't replace the one-on-one relationship you have with a qualified healthcare professional and is not considered psychotherapy. Thanks, Jess. And thank you for listening. Now let's begin a conversation about what happens when we take an integrative approach to improving our well-being. Hi, welcome to Insight Mind Body Talk. My name is Jess and I'm your host. Today we are talking about bringing the body into therapy. I'm here joined with Kate Loth. She is a sensory motor psychotherapist at Insight Counseling and Wellness. Hi, Kate. Glad you're here. Hi, Jess. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Definitely. I'm really excited to talk about the body and therapy and bring in some sensory motor information for our listeners, because I know it's been a key model for both of us in the work we do. And I know we're both really fascinated just by the sensory motor processing system. Yeah, we are. That was how we first connected when you came to Insight was about both of our experiences with doing the level one training. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really Mm -hmm. excited to dive into that more with you today. Yay. Awesome. For those who don't know, sensory motor psychotherapy is a body-oriented talking therapy. It was developed by Dr. Pat Ogden, and it's a blend of thought-based approaches with physical interventions. I know, Kate, we were going to share a little bit about how we found sensory motor as well and, and why we are passionate mm-hmm. about it. I found myself drawn to sensory motor psychotherapy because of the way it helps explain how we can use the body as the entry point in healing instead of just a person's thoughts or feelings. Back in the day, I was a personal trainer. And I was also knew I wanted to be a therapist. So I was in grad school for being a marriage and family therapist. And I wanted to combine these two worlds because through my own experience, I noticed that as much as I was healing my psyche, there were aspects of my whole self that weren't being addressed. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, my body. And I thought that exercise and personal training and this sort of fitness industry would address those concerns. And in some way it did. I've talked about in previous episodes how much weightlifting and cardiovascular work has changed my system's ability to respond to stress, to tolerate distress, to become stronger. There's a mindfulness quality to it. And yet it was sensory motor that really, at, in the end, completed the picture for me and, mm-hmm. and gave me a language and an understanding of how I can combine those worlds holistically mm-hmm. in the work I do. Because I was working with myself, I was working with lots of people who were trying to make lifestyle changes or get stronger or recover from injury. And... Yet, 
some of them, perhaps a large majority of them weren't feeling safe in their body Mm. or they were feeling disconnected from their body. Sensory motor gives that foundation, allowing me to help someone first know that they have a body, then learn from their body and then feel safe in their body. And it's during that process that we use movement and nervous system regulation and nutrition and things like that to really treat the whole person. Mm -hmm. How did you find sensory motor or how did it find you? Yeah. So even before I went to grad school or had thoughts of becoming a therapist, I heard about sensory motor, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when I started my own therapy and the therapist that I was working with at the time had trained in sensory motor psychotherapy. And at that point I had done some mindfulness and I had a yoga practice. So I had an idea about the mind body connection, but really experiencing as a client in therapy, how my emotional patterns, my beliefs, memories, all of that were held in my physical body that was a totally new experience and really transformational for me. So yeah, it was through being a client and through having those experiences that I had that desire to learn more and eventually went to grad school. And then after grad school, did the level one training because it was just such a powerful modality of healing for me personally. Wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. It was. Yeah. And it felt like magic almost Yeah, (laughs) as a client because I would come out of these therapy sessions and feel like, what just happened? (laughs) Like my body just experienced something and I can't really put words to it, but something feels really different. Something shifted, Mm -hmm. something reorganized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen that look in people's faces where it's almost indescribable, especially when there's sensory motor maybe combined with some inner child work as well. Mm -hmm. And the understanding that sensory motor and really just listening to the body, the wisdom of the body can give us, it just is a game changer. Mm -hmm. It really is a game changer, especially Mm -hmm. for us body-centered practitioners. It's a wonderful approach. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I was really open-minded to it. And I would joke with friends at the time, my therapist asked, like, what color do I feel in my stomach? And I said, blue, and it just made sense. And I felt this like overwhelming (laughs) relief. And they were like, huh, okay. Yeah. That sounds really cool. (laughs) It's like, you gotta be there. You gotta try it. I promise. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. One of the, we may talk about it later, but organicity, sensory motor Mm. talks about organicity, the principle of that there's wisdom that lives in us, in Mm. our body, and it can guide us. It can guide us in this healing process when we invite it in. Mm -hmm. And of course, today isn't about people receiving sensory motor psychotherapy through this conversation or feeling as though they can provide it for themselves. But I do hope that listeners gain information on even how to begin to start to notice or involve the body in any moment in our lives and maybe tuning into what it can share Mm -hmm. and that it's possible 
that it is sharing often and maybe mm-hmm. we're just not listening. Yeah. If we slow down and pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sensory motor psychotherapy. I want to give a quick rundown. When did it start? Where did it come from? In the seventies, Dr. Pat Ogden at that time, she wasn't a doctor, but she was working as a tech and a yoga and dance teacher in a psychiatric hospital. And she became interested in this correlation between her client's disconnection from their bodies and their physical patterns and disconnection from psychological issues. So she started to see that there was a relationship there. This was way before the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And Pat started seeing firsthand, and you can find this information on the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute website, but she started noticing in which many of the patients at the hospital were really at the mercy of reliving the past and that the past was alive in their bodies, but the current treatment methods only seemed to be triggering those reminders instead of helping heal and resolve that trauma that was within the body. So seeing that link between the body and people's mental health, she began to start forming the principles of sensory motor psychotherapy by joining the somatic therapy, which means body, somatic means body, and psychotherapy into this method for healing the disconnection between mind and body and started her own school after working with the Haikomi Institute with Dr. Ron Kurtz. She founded her own school, again, Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute, where other therapists are trained on how to help reintegrate the mind and body. We don't say integrate because it was once integrated. Mm -hmm. We were once whole in that capacity. It's just through life events and through trauma that there's a disconnection. And so how can we reintegrate that mind and body? Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Again, today is just us talking about why we love it, kind of stuff we use, giving, sharing, spreading the word about this interesting model. But if you want to learn more, you should Google Pat Ogden. She's just a wonderful teacher. Yeah, she's really a master. Kate, can you share with us a little bit about the foundational principles of sensory motor so that our listeners have a better understanding of where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. There are four principles that are the, the guiding values of sensory motor psychotherapy, organicity, unity, nonviolence, and mind, body, spirit, holism. Organicity, which you mentioned earlier, actually, which is honoring the intelligence and the wisdom of the body. It's trusting that all humans tend towards growth and healing. Every person has the inherent capacity to grow and to change. As a therapist, this means creating a condition, creating that safe relationship for clients to find their own answers, to trust that clients can guide their own healing process. Therapist is not the healer. A lot of people who believe, well, if I go to a therapist, they'll heal me. Or otherwise, why would I go? But really, the therapist's job in in this regard, at least, Mm -hmm. is to create that context or that container in which the client can trust and heal from within. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that actually is a good segue into the next one of the principles, which is unity. Unity acknowledges that we're all interconnected and we're all interdependent, valuing the collaboration, that collaborative therapeutic relationship. Me as a therapist, you as a client, there's no hierarchy there. We're we're humans that are relating. The next one is nonviolence. More broadly, that means a therapist has an attitude of non-judgment, that there's no criticizing or pathologizing or giving advice. It means observing the client's experience with curiosity and compassion. You know, the therapist is not pushing an agenda or challenging in a way that feels threatening to the client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a really good point. If things shift, it's really the client's safe space to allow whatever unfolds in the session mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. for the therapist to hold that with compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From this lens of understanding and compassion and organicity. It's not coming at it through a critical lens. It's really understanding the inherent wisdom or best intention of how the client is making choices or behaving or thinking and realizing, seeing how every person has the inherent capacity to grow and to change. Definitely. That's absolutely true. And the last principle is the mind, body, spirit, holism. That means acknowledging the mind, body, and spirit are constantly interacting and they all make up our experience as humans. So sensory motor psychotherapy values the body as the primary source of intelligence and information and change, but all significant mental, emotional, and spiritual experiences are registered in the body. Agreed. Jeannie and I talked about that maybe even in our first or second episode, that traditional Western model of medical or managed care treatment is we treat the body here, we treat the mind over here, but where is that whole self, whole person approach Mm -hmm. honoring how you cannot have one without the other Mm -hmm. and that they will show up together. I want to share with our listeners a video of Dr. Pat Ogden speaking to does sensory motor psychotherapy treat trauma or does it treat attachment issues? And before we listen, I want to explain a couple of the key words she's going to be using. Mm -hmm. So in therapy, when we talk about attachment, we're actually talking about a child using their primary caregiver as a secure base to explore the world. When a child has a strong attachment, they have a safe haven, a place that they can go to at any time. And then when they feel ready, they go out into the world, even if that means they toddle over to the bookshelf. Right. And then maybe the dog walks by and spooks them and they come right back to mom. That's Mm -hmm. practicing secure attachment. I have the safe place to go to. So she'll talk about attachment issues or attachment disruptions in this video. She also uses words like hyper arousal and hypo arousal. And hyper arousal means our body and our system are in high alert because of a trauma. Even if the danger is not present, the body responds or believes it is. So hyper arousal can look more like anxiety, worry, flee, fight, this activated part of our system. And hypo arousal is actually an under response because of a threat or a danger 
our system starts to immobilize, freeze, or shut down, maybe feelings of depression, feeling numb, dissociated. That's a hypo-aroused state. All right, Dr. Pat Ogden speaking to, does sensory motor psychotherapy treat trauma or does it treat attachment issues? So let's listen in. It works with both. You know, I, I actually started out working with attachment and relational issues and, you know, leftover childhood difficulties and the trauma came later. Um, but pe I think because Trauma in the Body was, you know, the first book that people think it's really a method for trauma. But they're very, they're very different, although they're really interrelated. So, you know, with trauma, there's often dysregulation in the nervous system where people get either hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused, and um, there's all this work with animal defenses, you know, like fight, flight, freeze and you know feign death response that people develop habits of responses um, in those defenses that we have to you know work with and develop more flexibility among those defenses and with attachment it's really different um, because you know our bodies start to literally shape themselves around our interactions with our attachment figures when we're very, very young, and we start to develop patterns of response. You know, like Bowlby wrote a lot about proximity-seeking actions, like you know, signaling that you wanted somebody close or actually approaching your attachment figure. And for kids who've had difficulties, uh, even if, it, if it's not abuse or trauma, um, those difficulties can be pervasive in their lives and they can have trouble in relationships when they when they get older, you know. So we work a lot with, with just reaching out and, you know, kids, adults and children, they'll reach out in different ways depending on their confidence that their attachment figure will respond to them in the way that they need, that they need you know. So, like, somebody might reach out like this and say, well... My attachment figures, you know, they kind of expected me to feel, to be independent, so they don't have that, that full reach. Um, and we look at how the beliefs, you know, from the childhood live in the body. Like if, if someone grew up thinking they have to perform to be loved, their body might be mobilized, you know. And, uh, if somebody grew up thinking that, or feeling that um, they didn't have quite the right kind of support, um, the body would have a different, different patterns. So we we work with those leftover wounds from childhood, even when they're not experienced as you know life threatening. And those trauma and attachment they always overlap. So you know everybody's had trauma, whether they're traumatized or not, and everybody has attachment issues. So we we'll work with both. The way that I think of it, and a lot of the infant researchers write about this, is that those early patterns um, really show up in the movement of the body. They're not, they don't show up in an autobiographical verbal memory, but those patterns start very, very young. And you can see these 
procedural organization of action sequences, even in infants, and um, and you know they can constrain possibilities. Uh, like if if a child isn't picked up when needed in a consistent way, even if there's no trauma, the child's body will respond in a certain way that will constrain options, you know, later on. But then, of course, all later experience contributes to those meanings and, you know, that implicit sense of self as well. After hearing Dr. Ogden speak on trauma and attachment, Kate, I don't think we can talk about bringing the body into the therapy room unless we first discuss trauma, not just thoughts and feelings, but Mm -hmm. within the body, within the whole system. Mm -hmm. I would explain trauma as an event or a series of events. It could be a real threat, like being in Mm -hmm. a car accident, or it could be a perceived threat where someone is threatening you and you don't know if they have the ability to hurt you, but it feels like they do you're sensing that threat is real Mm -hmm. and it's overwhelming to your system, your, your body, your mind, and some response happens Mm -hmm. in an attempt to survive in an attempt to keep a person safe. Janina Fisher, another sensory motor psychotherapist says, we now understand that trauma's imprint is both psychological and somatic. Long after the events are over, the body continues to respond as if danger were ever present. Yeah, trauma shows up in the body. It shows up in our emotional state. It shows up in our cognitions or in our thoughts. In the body, it can look like changes in your heart rate, changes in your breathing, changes in digestion. It can be chronic pain or tension from muscles tightening. It can be numbness. Long-term, it can have other impacts on the body. There can be nightmares or real physical disorders that can result from these patterns over time. It's important to know that because it helps us address trauma and look at how can we help people be healthier, not just mentally, but physically. Mm-hmm. And to address, you use the word depathologizing, which just for anyone listening means helping us realize it's not us. Like this isn't just, oh, I'm anxious. I have anxiety. It, there's something wrong with me. It's no, these life events happened and now they're causing these symptoms. Trauma survivors have symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of trauma symptoms described as a normal response to an abnormal event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely. And I think we'll get into that in a little bit, actually, talking about how our brain responds and our body responds to trauma and that it's so natural. All of these survival responses we have or because our brain and our body are taking care of us mm-hmm. and are so fast. One thing I would add yeah. is our body and our nervous system perceives threat before we can cognitively process it. Our body is responding to the threat from that from the lizard brain. We're not responding in choice. I love, yeah, Jeannie and I talk about it, but I really like saying it in every episode in case this, if this is the only episode you ever listen to, just so you know, 
these survival responses, we do not choose for them to happen. Mm -hmm. This isn't a conscious choice, fleeing, wanting to get out of a room. Why'd they walk out on me when I was talking to them? Or why do they get so upset so fast? Or why am I getting so upset so fast? Or why do I seek reassurance from other people when I'm feeling overwhelmed? So sometimes we take these as character flaws, but it's not our choice and it's automatic. Mm-hmm. But mindfulness and watching and observing, that gives us choice. Mm-hmm. And then we can change how we respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you for bringing that up, Kate. Mm-hmm. So let's start talking about the triune brain, how our brains get overwhelmed, how our brains even get hijacked by trauma. Mm-hmm. The triune brain is the frontal cortex, the mammalian brain, and the reptilian brain. All humans have the frontal cortex, the part of our brain that's in charge of logic, reasoning, language. The midbrain is where the limbic system is located. That's our threat response system. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. In sensory motor, we also refer to it as the mammalian brain because all mammals have this area of the brain. It's where emotions lie and where attachment comes into play. And then the base of our brain, it's brainstem and cerebellum, the oldest response, the most ancient area of our brains called the reptilian brain, because reptiles, they don't have attachment. They don't mm-hmm. have emotions. They just have pure instinct. And that's really important to know as we talk mm-hmm. more about this. But shifting back to the front of our brain, it's our cognitive processing system. What does that mean? Cognitions or thoughts. It's where we think. It's where we have regulation. So we can't regulate ourselves unless we're in the front of our brain, unless the front of our brain is activated. Why is mindfulness so important? It brings us in the front of our brain where we have regulatory abilities. We can process our thoughts. It's where the going on with everyday life self exists. So when we experience a threat, our brain shifts to the middle part of our brain, sends a signal to our thalamus as part of the brain's in charge of all the sensory information, heart rate, breath, tension, our five senses. And then our thalamus sends a signal. And again, milliseconds, milla of milliseconds, whatever a milla millisecond is, I don't know, but it's fast. It goes to our amygdala, the part of our brain that is like the fire alarm in a way going off Mm -hmm. saying danger. And it tells our nervous system to respond. We mobilize. Our brain tells our body to flee. So maybe there's tension in our limbs, tension in our legs. Our heart rate picks up. Our pupils dilate to see threat. We flee or we fight or we seek an attachment figure, which is called an attachment cry response, or even we try to befriend the threat. I'm going to solve this problem by being super non-threatening and friendly, and then the threat will pass. Mm -hmm. All mobilization strategies. Yet if the danger becomes a life threat, again, milliseconds, our brain decides and our body decides if that strategy will work, it will go into the back of our brain which is the reptilian brain and brainstem. That's where we have automatic instinctive responses where we either freeze or we shut down or dissociate. If we're triggered, the reptilian brain can take over, can bypass, it can shut down the front of your brain. 
So often when we're living in the middle of our brain or in the back of our brain, we have a hard time being mindful and feeling connected to our body. And part of the work we do as sensory motor therapists is to help someone process the trauma through the body. And if we can address the trauma that lives in the body, we can get back to the front of the brain where we have regulation where we have regulatory abilities, we can process our thoughts, emotions. It's where the going on with everyday life self exists. I'm just thinking oftentimes people who experience trauma might not have a memory of the event because the prefrontal cortex shuts down. And that's part of the survival response of getting through a traumatic moment often is your body responding in a way, your brain responding in a way that you don't remember the event because Mm -hmm. that your brain's effort to keep you safe is protecting you from the overwhelm of that experience. So I think that's a helpful explanation because often people say, it's so weird that I don't remember either. Yeah. I have memories, but parts that are just blank. And that's actually, that was really adaptive. And that was part of the survival response to make it through that traumatic event. But that's such a good point that the body, the body doesn't remember things chronologically. When we're in the front of our brain, we make what's called explicit memory. Explicit memory is the memories we remember. It's like kindergarten and on. I can kind of remember my first day of kindergarten. (laughs) Explicit memory. Mm -hmm. Implicit memory is stored in our body. That's the memory that's stored in the right side of our brain where it's body memories. There's no language. It's implicit. And that starts when we're in utero, when our nervous system and body are forming, they're organizing around the energy of our mothers and their nervous systems and their bodily responses. And then as we're children and toddlers, just because they're not making explicit memory doesn't mean what's happening to them isn't shaping the adult they're going to be because the body remembers implicit. So if you experienced a trauma when you were 5, 15, 50, and it feels like you're reliving something in that present moment, you are. Mm-hmm. It, you're not making it up. Mm-hmm. The body doesn't know you're not five or 15 or 50 anymore. Mm -hmm. It is activated in the now. And you talked about this a little bit earlier about how we don't have choice in the survival response that's happening. But if we can bring mindfulness to our body and to our thoughts and our emotions, we can start to notice, okay, when my mom wrinkles her face like that at me and my heart rate increases, let's pause and notice what's happening. And is there a way to get curious about that and respond Mm -hmm. to that? Okay. So I'm having a reaction right now. And Mm -hmm. is this, is there a present moment danger? How do I Mm -hmm. ground myself in the present to bring the prefrontal cortex back online to assess? Mm -hmm. Okay, no, I'm safe right now. And how do I, how do I want to respond to this moment and not let, you know, that hijacking happen, that trigger mm-hmm. take over and overwhelm my system. Exactly. So that mindfulness, that awareness, racing heart. Oh, I feel tension in my body. Oh, I kind of want to get up, but no, society says I should sit here mm-hmm. and not get up. 
and walk around. I'm supposed to sit here politely and maintain eye contact and keep this conversation going. And yet, if you listen to the system and it feels like it needs to get up and the body feels as though it maybe wants to walk around, that's a potential moment where you can follow through on that survival response. And that's often how trauma gets truncated in the system is that when those survival responses that we have naturally are not allowed to be followed through on in small ways and in very large distinct ways, it can get stuck. Let's say the survival response is to flee. What would happen if you got up and just walked around while you were talking? Would that even be enough to engage the system to mindfully allow the body to take the response it wanted to long time ago? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about hijacking. Let's go into that a little bit and how being hijacked in our world means the reptilian brain took over real fast and flooded mm-hmm. someone either with an emotion or thoughts, but usually it's body sensations. Mm-hmm. In order to understand what's happening, I'll break it down a little bit more. We have what's called top-down processing. Top-down means you're working with first the front of your brain, the frontal cortex, and then maybe some midbrain emotion, and then processing the body's response. Working with cognition, CBT is a very popular and well-respected top-down processing technique where if there's a thought that's not helpful, you look at what triggers the thought and you look to challenge the thought and reframe it. Working to reframe those thoughts and hoping that this helps their psyche feel safe. So the thought, I'm all alone in the world. Okay, let's notice what triggered that. When I asked my partner for support to take over a task this week, because I'm feeling overwhelmed, and they said they couldn't because they were too busy, I felt I'm all alone in the world. And top-down processing would start with, can we look at that thought? Is that logical? Are you really alone in the world? Okay, no, I'm not. I'm not alone in the world. I know I'm loved. Okay, can we look at what triggered that thought? Can we reframe? Can we practice saying, I'm not alone in the world. I know my partner loves me, but they just don't have time to take on that task. And that's helpful to work on. But what it doesn't do is address, doesn't acknowledge the body's response. A lot of traditional talk therapy does top-down processing only. And the way we bring the body into the therapy room is sure we do top-down processing. Yeah, makes sense. We use that when it's appropriate. But we also do what's called bottom-up processing. Bottom-up processing acknowledges, hey, the body responds first to everything. Let's get real. It responds way faster than our thoughts do to any situation. There's a reason why we at the last second catch ourselves and don't trip over a box that's randomly on the floor. The body already noticed it and then told your brain, hey, look at that box right there. Do something about it. And then we responded all automatic. So when we work with the lower levels of the brain, the base of the brainstem and then the midbrain and the limbic system and how these influence our emotions and cognitions, we can start to see how our physical behaviors and actions create the foundation of our mental actions. So our body's experiences are shaping our emotions and thoughts. Bottom up is reptilian brain up through the limbic system and the emotional processing system Mm -hmm. to the front of our brain. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think, Kate? Totally. This is a key concept in sensory motor. <laughs> and also one where our clients are sometimes like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, to go to your example from the top-down processing. So say a client comes in and they're like, I feel totally overwhelmed and alone. I asked my partner to help me out and they said, I can't, I'm too busy. I can't take on that task. Mm-hmm. How would you approach that from a bottom-up perspective? Great question. So I'm going to close my eyes. You can't see me, but I'm closing my eyes. I think I'm closing my instinctually to see what my body would Mm -hmm. feel like in that moment. More than likely, I would pull it back even a few beats before that. If I'm asking for a request for help, I'm probably already feeling overwhelmed, most likely. Mm -hmm. I'm probably already in the middle of my brain or even in the base of my brain where depending on what was happening, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, maybe I'm even teetering and freeze a little bit or a little bit of sympathetic activation. So perhaps my heart is racing and there's tension in my body, but I'm feeling stuck. I I would just create awareness of how did I even feel before the request was made? Mm -hmm. And then what tone did I use in that request? Was I mindful in that moment or was I already overwhelmed and I, I don't even quite recall how I said it or what I did? Because if I'm not mindful, that means I'm not in the front of my brain and I'm not going to remember the event as well. So maybe when my partner says, no, I can't this week. I'm really busy too. I'm sorry. I wasn't able to really read the sincerity in their voice. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to look them in the eye and see that they're, they care about me, but they just mm-hmm. can't do it this time. And so I would explore how is my system reading their response? Mm-hmm. Was there any past events? Maybe they crinkled their brow the same way a parent did or something, or Maybe they felt bad, so they looked away and my system shifted. Let's say based on their response, how did my system respond to their saying I couldn't do it? Did it disconnect? Did it have a different body response? I would just be curious. What was being informed? How did I feel? What sensations were present? Mm -hmm. And we would look at it through the five minutes leading up as much as we can remember during And then how I felt afterwards, how did my body organize that experience Mm -hmm. afterwards? And then how did my body influence my emotions? Mm -hmm. And then how did my body, my emotions influence my narrative and my story? Did I feel more shut down Mm -hmm. or did I have a fight response and say, you never help me and, and start a fight? Maybe my system responded with fight. Mm -hmm. Maybe my system responded with Oh, I really am all alone in the world. See, there's proof and it shut Mm -hmm. down further and it disconnected Mm -hmm. and exploring then through my body, what happened? How did I make meaning of all of it? Mm -hmm. But I would really work to observe rather than interpret what was happening. Just be curious. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. The I think we like to have a story about what's happening. Our mind likes to jump in and create the narrative or cling to a narrative about something. Oh, yeah. But I think <laughs> you're familiar with that. We're human. We know what that feels like. Uh-huh. Oh, well, this is just, this is just further proof that my partner mm-hmm. doesn't care about me and mm-hmm. but I am really alone. So how do we set aside the narrative? 
and observe and be present with what's happening in the body and allow for some exploration. Yeah. What do you notice about your body as we're talking about that experience? Mm -hmm. The thinking in my stomach. Uh huh. And is that familiar? Right. Is Mm. that such a key point? Yes. So I was in the past with working through that and you did exactly what a really good sensory motor therapist would do is you (laughs) said, how does your body right now feel? Because we work with what's happening right now, even if the event is in the past, Mm -hmm. because it still lives in the body right now. And that's where we can mindfully work with it and change it. Mm -hmm. Because it is amazing. Even if you're talking about a past event, the sensation is always present. Even if you're recalling something that happened last week, if you're telling the story, your body is experiencing it in a way Mm -hmm. as well present. And so you can still tap into that experience, Mm -hmm. even if if the narrative is in the past. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Which is also really helpful for when trauma survivors don't have memory. Mm -hmm. So I don't recall what happened. I'm just living with these symptoms of hyperarousal or hypoarousal of anxiety or depression, and they come out of nowhere or it's chronic. And I don't know why. Well, you know what? You don't have to know why. Let's just work with what is here. We don't have to rehash the past. And while that can be really helpful for some who perhaps need a safe container to tell their story safely for the first time or to work with their body and the story safely, that's not necessarily how we need to pursue every moment in therapy with the body. We can, as we just talked about, we can mindfully process bottom up in therapy. We can mindfully process bottom up on our own in our own time. But when we feel triggered or as we've called it hijacked, that's when it automatically happens to us. When it just happens without our permission and we're flooded. I think I've told you this before. I had a hijack experience when I was co-facilitating a conference. I was in the middle of, I was in my professional self. I'm feeling good. I'm happy with the day. And I started walking down the steps and suddenly I was brought to tears and my body just needed to go cry because a smell hit me. And I walked behind, see, it's even alive in my body right now. Like I can feel my throat changing. I can feel my face get flushed. I'm very tingly in my legs. And if, yeah. And this smell, just like my husband's grandfather hit me and we had lost Mm -hmm. him within that year. He's really special to all of us Mm -hmm. for so many reasons. It must've been someone I was walking by. Right. And it smelled just like Papa and it knocked into me and my whole system got hijacked Mm -hmm. and I left the moment and I pulled myself over around the corner and let myself be with it and cry and feel it Mm because there's all sorts of emotions some good because it's almost like you were with someone you've lost Mm -hmm. and yet there's grief as well and let it run through my system and having that understanding of what was happening Mm -hmm. was really helpful Versus being really confused and perhaps even overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of when 
our brain and our body take over without us even understanding what's going on. Our frontal cortex gets shut down when we get hijacked. I just want to say that I love that you shared that story, the personal Mm -hmm. story. And thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that's such a beautiful example of how psychoeducation, how educating ourselves about what's happening allows for some relief, right? It's okay. What's happening right now? I don't need to be scared or avoidant of what's going on. I can allow this to happen. And one that you gave yourself the space to do that, that you you didn't just say, I'm at a conference and I'm in professional mode and I can't cry. I need to keep going and push through this, but you really gave Mm. yourself a moment to be present with that experience. And my guess is then it moved through you, right? You allowed that to be processed and you felt those feelings and then you went on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it's just, it really highlights how we are mindful of our experience and we can slow down. It allows us to fully process. A lot of times we're going through our day and it's, oh, there's some feeling there. Oh, I don't have time. I need to respond to this email or I need to get to this meeting Mm. or need to pick up my kids or whatever. There's a sense of urgency that we don't have time, the time to pay attention to that. But what you're saying is really, it took a few minutes to pause and to allow Mm -hmm. yourself to cry. And I was still pretty mindful when we're truly hijacked or triggered, the front of our brain gets shut down. Why? To preserve energy for survival. And that's why when people say, I know I'm supposed to breathe deep, but I don't remember to do it when I'm overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I know I should meditate, but meditating is not going to work. Why don't all these front brain based strategies work when I'm triggered? Well, because you don't have access to your front of your brain at that moment. So what can you do for your body first? How can we connect to the body? Mm -hmm. What we want to do, for example, is just observe like you're talking about with curiosity and therapy. We learn new actions, new resources, new ways to regulate so that when we are overwhelmed in those moments, we have something to go to that helps us get back to the front of the brain. And that's a lot of the work I do in sensory motor psychotherapy with my clients is building enough resources so that we can even get to the front of our brain where those Mm -hmm. cognitive interventions work. And that's the goal for everyone. Anytime we do that kind of work from small moments, small events in our lives traumatic experiences or chronic or complex trauma. Mm -hmm. That's the goal is to help the body, heart, soul, figure out a new way of being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Kate and I are going to pause here. We're thankful to be sharing this information with our listeners and we're excited to have you join us again next week where we continue our conversation about bringing the body into therapy. I have really enjoyed having you here today, and I can't think of anyone better to help share this information with our listeners. Thank you, Jess. I always learn something in our conversations, so I really appreciate taking the time to do this. Thank you again for joining us on Insight Mind Body Talk, a body-centered mental health podcast. We hope today's episode was empowering and supported you in strengthening your mind-body connection. We're your hosts, Jeannie and Jess. Please join us again next week as we continue to explore integrative approaches to well-being. 
Until then, take care.